it's always like frightening for for me um, to go to a performance, mm. and I always feel like I'm I'm on fire, and like uh, I need to I need to make sure that everything is being yeah. uh, uh, controlled. But I mean, it's always the responsibility of everyone mm-hmm. to hold the the energy and. I understand from my position as a conductor that whenever you are trying to say in an aggressive or non-aggressive way is something you need to say. You're listening to Hani Arastum. He's a Syrian living in Lebanon, and he leads the Sada Playback Theatre Troupe that engages with communities affected by serious conflict. And to me, this is a radically interesting thing. You group together people who have gone through traumatic events. You create a safe space for sharing experiences and for people to begin to connect and to empathize. And you do all this in real time with a conductor and a troupe of actors. At the same time, Hani's own story is fascinating. He's a psychotherapist who came to study in Lebanon and then got stuck there as the war in Syria escalated. So, as always, this is kind of a double conversation. It's about both the work and the personal story behind it. We get into what it's like to hold the space for people to open up about conflict and trauma in the very recent past, when it makes sense to attempt that, and what kind of outcomes can be expected. How Hani's own work in Lebanon relates to his hopes, his fears for Syria, and his family there. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. I will start by telling you who am I, and why I'm here, and how I get uh, to this point in, in my work. Uh, so my name is Hani Rustam, and uh, I'm Syrian. My my mother is Lebanese, and uh, I recently knew that my mother uh, grew up in this neighborhood, which I never knew before. So I feel it's like the the, the universe is taking me to to uh, to where my mother was uh, like forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I, I I was born in Syria and I grew up in Syria and I studied my my first um, like my secondary school in, in, in Syria and I always had the dream to be a doctor mm-hmm. and I'm from very um, uh, open and big family mm-hmm. so we all live together like my aunts uncles my parents like we all live in one compound it's like a small village for my family. So I was, <laughs> I was always meant to be the uh, doctor of this family, mm. you know. So I came, I came to Lebanon in two thousand and eight uh, to start my mission of studying medicine and go back to treat my family in a way or another. Mm-hmm. So it was a horrible experience in the beginning because you know I came from a village and. Um, uh, I came to Lebanon and I lived uh, in a very different place than what I'm, I was used to live in before. And um, then like, I studied medicine for three years. It was like pre-med school and 
2010, my dad got arrested in, mm-hmm. in Syria, and he was somehow political prisoners, but he was never a politi- politician. Mm-hmm. So it was like somehow uh, confusing for everyone. And since 2012, uh, so since 2010, the, the situation got to be very, very escalated, mm-hmm. and my family started to collapse more and more and more because my dad was the person who is holding the business mm. of the family. Uh, so I started to live another level of uh, um, living. I mean, I never, I never knew what is depression, what is mm. anxiety, what is uh, trauma, what is like social problems and I, I was living in a like, calm family uh, we had some money and it was like safe and everything was mm-hmm. going well and so on um, yeah so so I started experience new level of things um, I started to suffer from university from studying a lot started to suffer from financial situation which is which became uh, very uh, uh, critical at that point, and then in 2011, uh, the Syrian revolution started, and the uh, things started to like really escalate very, very fast. And it was like as if the war was starting in a way or another. So I started to lose m- members of my family. Mm. Uh, some of them were. Uh, kidnapped, some of them were in jail, some of them were killed and it was going really uh, fast and uncontrollable so I started to think about like what should I do, what should I do and I started this panic mood until I met someone and she's from US uh, called uh, Christine Lindner and she was my professor at university mm-hmm. Uh, she was teaching uh, history. Yeah, so so I said like, okay, look, I have, I want to do something, and I, I, I don't know what to do. So she she introduced me to uh, activism. Uh, mm-hmm. What is like activism and how you can be an activist? And I never knew what 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 does activism mean at that time at all. So she put me uh, on a thread of emails with other. Uh, uh, colleagues she had in her life in New York and um, she was telling my story and I, I had like I had a dream of doing a documentary at that time about what's going on in Syria mm-hmm. so also I, I, I met a friend uh, she's American uh, American Jordanian her name is Noor and we said okay, let's go and do something uh, to show everyone in the world what's going on in Syria. And we thought that it was that easy. And, you know, (laughs) exactly. Uh, You know, my friend, I I didn't know anything. And my friend, she was like this American white girl who is going to uh, free the country, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, like, let's go to Bashar al-Assad and tell him he needs to stop this. I was like, Seriously, he's killing everyone. What, in what, can, what can go wrong? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah so we we started filming actually, and we did some some filming in mm. in, in different places in in uh, Akkar, in the north of uh, on the borders of Syria and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, we got into CNN and to meet these people, uh, which was really overwhelming for me, like CNN, BBC, Daily Telegraph, uh, LA Times, and many, many other international uh, newspaper and like magazines and TV uh, channels. Uh, and then I started to, 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 to get to know these people and different areas of the world who, is, who are uh, covering war zones. And without noticing and without knowing how I went there, I started to be a focal point for more than 25 uh, international uh, magazine, newspaper, TV channel who were interested to cover uh, what's happening in Syria. And I became like in the journalism life in a way or another. And mm. I never studied journalism or, or, or practiced journalism before. At the same time, uh, so it was like 2012. And in the same time, uh, in 2012, actually, I met uh, Bilal uh, mm. uh, by chance. He was working with um, USAID. And, uh, yeah, he said like he was, he was actually working on, uh, supporting local initiatives to, uh, to grow and to do some, uh, communal work in, in, in the area of Tripoli and Dakar. And his focus was to engage Syrian and Lebanese people together. So it, it was a kind of, uh, social cohesion program in 2012. So I met him and he said, okay, look, if you have a group of volunteers, uh, bring them in and we can train you guys and you can have uh, uh, an opportunity to, to, to learn how to work with, with children. While I was, why I'm saying children, because while I was filming um, the, with my friend in, in the north of Lebanon, I was noticing a lot of behavior, like weird behaviors with, with children. Mm. Uh, Later on, I, I knew that this is PTSD and this is post-traumatic stress disorder for children and it's uh, the effect of displacement and so mm -hmm. on. So I started to ask my professor in university about it and I started to be myself uh, 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 stressed out because of the situation and because I'm hearing a lot of stories, I'm translating all the time for journalists about mm -hmm. what's going on. So I had to have the, like, the, I started to have the, the PTSD symptoms. So that time I, I decided to leave my med school and study psychology because mm. I was looking for an answer to all the uh, internal questions inside mm. me about life, what's happening, why this is happening and so on. Um, I thought that the, the answer would be in the books, but uh, right. I guess the answers were not, <laughs> yeah. not in the books. It was never in the book. <laughs> it never is. <laughs> yeah, so... At the same time, I met Bilal and I told him I'm studying psychology and uh, I'm doing some uh, work on the media level and I was doing some uh, random work on uh, uh, psychological first aid and first aid and emergency aid and aid in the war zones. And it was like really mixed up mm -hmm. and you can never know what is your orientation, what you want to focus on because like it's like, like emergency mode and everyone is like doing everything. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, so I had a group of, of volunteers doing some different things and we started uh, forming a group of um, uh, 
our a team for psychosocial support through um, um, some art and uh, um, like drama approaches. Mm-hmm. And it was very like uh, natural and uh, spontaneous at that time. I was always referring to my university who were really supporting me because I was the first Syrian uh, psychologist in my university. And the head of university, she was like very, very supportive. And she said like, look, now it's time for you to move to another level of your your career. And we need to get you into uh, psychoanalysis training mm-hmm. uh, to be one of the first psychoanalysts in Syria. And this requires you to, to do uh, special work. So I was doing that with them. And in, in, in this, in, in this uh, training or formation, I was being trained to work with children as well. Yeah, one day in 2014, I met uh, someone in Beirut. I was attending a workshop, uh, clay therapy for trauma. Mm-hmm. You know the clay modeling? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so I, was taking, I was taking a training on that with mm-hmm. Cornelia. She's uh, one of the first uh, uh, clay therapists in the world. And uh, she's based in Australia. And uh, she, she was training us how to work on the clay field uh, to heal trauma. And I met a friend, uh, her name is Soline. Uh, she introduced me to something called playback theater. It's like uh, a focused methodology in, in theater to work on the social field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did many, many, many other things on, on, the, on parallel, but to focus on what I'm doing, one of what I'm doing here now. So I started the foundation in Playback Theatre in 2014. What does this look like? I mean, if you are entering uh, a space in the community for this exercise, just paint a a picture of of what it will look like from the point of view of the community member who comes to, to see what's going on. I see the flyer. It says this. This weird, yeah, this weird thing is on at this place. Like, okay, yeah. okay. So actually, it's a performance, and you go and attend the performance, and you will see that you will have five actors, all wearing black, two musicians also wearing black with their instruments, and a conductor. Mm-hmm. So this conductor will first introduce. The actors will do the ritual dance and the introduction of the performance and then the conductor will come in and start engaging with the audience, engaging with the community, asking them where they come from, if it's their first time attending this kind of work of performances. And based on the theme or based on something happening in the area, uh, the discussion starts. For example, um, like um, I can ask who is Syrian, who is Lebanese, who is Palestinian. I can ask uh, uh, who lived for at least one time in his, in his life um, a conflict or who witnessed a conflict, for example, or, or uh, everyone who lost someone from close from his family in the war raises his hand. So I started to do something we call sociometry. Mm-hmm. And sociometry is uh, is a uh, it's a theory of psychodrama theory uh, mm-hmm. by uh, Moreno. 
So we introduce the community to each other without opening a dialogue between them. So it's the conductor with the audience without the audience talking together. Mm-hmm. And then we start, the, the conductor starts to ask them, uh, to ask the audience uh, uh, to share short moments or short feelings they, they are having uh, in the moment. So uh, what do they they feel? Uh, how was their day? Uh, what does it mean? Or how, how, how is it for them, uh, for example, to be in this place? So they the conductor starts to take some feelings or some moments and sharings from different people in the audience. So they start to, to share. So whenever you share, uh, for example, uh, you say, um, I, I never expected the road up from Tripoli to here to be uh, very exhausting and I'm mm. really tired mm. and uh, I need some time to settle down. So this is a sharing. Mm-hmm. And it opens up the, the 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 door for others to relate and to talk about their opinion about the area and how they are living here in this area and so on. So when you share this moment, the conductor asks the the actors to uh, uh, play back your your moment. So we improvise or they improvise uh, your emotions, focusing mm-hmm. on. Um, uh, something we call the heart of the story or what you are trying to say deeply inside in a conscious or an unconscious way. Mm-hmm. So what is the suffering you are trying to, to tell or what is the main uh, uh, essence you are trying to say. So it's not about the road maybe, it's about you being exhausted. So we focus on the exhaustion. And then uh, we do this warm-up uh, sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take five to seven sharings from the community and then we move to the second part of the performance where the conductor asks someone of the audience uh, to come and sit on the stage with the actors and we have a special space for the, the teller and to share full story or a long experience and it, it, it might have uh, different characters, different places, different um, experiences and it, it has like more in, in a deep uh, um, experience mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, for the teller and the conductor is the interviewer and we have like five minute minutes interview with the teller and then the actors put the story again in action and we play back the whole thing but we don't focus on the uh, uh, what happened we focus on how the teller uh, was pos- positioning himself inside this and what were the main emotion and we look at the social political psychological uh, levels in the story and we try to to uh, highlight uh, the things mm. so we take and we take different stories uh, mm-hmm. like we take uh, two to three to four stories in the performance and then the audience uh, we, we give them the audience the chance to to talk to each other like for two minutes only and then after the performance ends uh, we open uh, the, the the space for the audience to meet each other mm-hmm. and to talk so if, 
if I can, if I heard your story and I empathize with you, I can have the chance to go and talk to you and to to get to know you more uh, after we finish. And uh, who is the conductor? Is in that, my group. Yeah, I am the conductor. And this, does anyone else do it, or is it just you? Because that sounds enormously difficult. Like it's very difficult. It's a very tricky it, thing. Exactly because because. You, you need to look at many aspects and the yeah. same aspects in the same time you need to uh, to make sure that uh, you are um, containing the audience and understanding what's going on with this mm-hmm. group of people who came and you never sometimes you don't know them mm-hmm. sometimes they don't know each other yeah. and everyone is coming with a narrative and yeah. it's coming with suffering somehow or, or everyone is coming with a story yeah. and you know how stories can be difficult and can like create conflict uh, and at the same time it can like, create peace uh, so the conductor needs to look at this component the conductor needs to look at the story itself mm-hmm. so how the story is being told what 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 to focus on what not to focus on and yeah. how how to um, uh, like you, you know to sculpt the story mm-hmm. to make it in, in the shape of uh, the essence that the real story and also the conductor needs to uh, make sure that the actors and the musicians are uh, on 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 the mood in the mood and not in the mood on psychological level I mean and they are being present and yeah. they have this connection with the audience because mm. the moment that the, con- that the the audience and the actors are disconnected the playback will be uh, uh, like uh, somehow fragmented mm. and at the same time uh, the conductor should should be containing the whole atmosphere. And in the space, so it's very tiring and I'm it's sure. very complicated on on many many levels. So we learn in very specific training how to be a conductor, and it takes a lot of experience uh, mm. to talk to people and to work with people uh, on this uh, uh, level. So the project was going back to the project. The project was uh, with the NDP. Uh, um, to introduce playback theater to the community, mm-hmm. where like no one knows what is playback theater here. I was the only person who knows what does playback theater mean. So we 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 got some help from uh, playback theater troupe in Beirut. Was the only troupe in, in Lebanon, uh, active troupe. So they came and they did a performance here. Uh, we invited the neighborhood. And after the performance, after they shared and they they experienced what does playback theater means, we we had applications for people who are interested to uh, learn this uh, mm-hmm. this kind of work. Mm. And then the week after, we took we we called these sixty people and we said like, okay, now we are going to attend another performance in Beirut to make sure that you want this thing. Yeah, because sometimes it's overwhelming, so. You say the like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. So we, we take them to Beirut, and out of these sixty, we had uh, around forty interested people, and then we called for auditions. 
mm-hmm. uh, actors auditions and we, we took this 40 to uh, an audition and then uh, 30 came in and we chose 15 out of the 30 and we started uh, intensive training uh, with a playback theater trainer from Beirut uh, in two months we had very intensive uh, work with with the group and we had uh, one of the international trainers coming from Egypt mm-hmm. as American uh, called Ben Rivers was the person uh, who brought the playback theater to the Middle East actually in 2007 mm. so Ben Rivers uh, came in and he trained us for five days and then we had uh, another international trainer, trainer for music and then we started our performances in the area and we had uh, the plan uh, to do monthly performance here in, in the rooftop of shift and sometimes here and sometimes downstairs and we did many different performances in different places uh, of Tripoli. Mm-hmm. Uh, some performances uh, had the theme of uh, conflict transformation so a lot of uh, stories about, about conflict were shared mm-hmm. uh, some themes were open and we had the same theme later because you know when when you open the theme everyone start to share and at the end of the performance performance you you see that a theme was created mm-hmm. without like creating it in the beginning yes so this is it uh, in general and in the playback uh, now you can ask me if you have questions uh, at the same time, uh, uh, we were identifying uh, places and houses were known as uh, fighting uh, access yeah. and, and on the front lines. So it's it's a house like this house where snipers and soldiers used to take it as a base mm-hmm. for them and to shoot to different um uh, locations and, and uh, directions so these places are destroyed and empty mm-hmm. and it has a lot of symbolism to the community uh, uh, and this it symbolizes a lot the war, the killing, the death and, and so on so we had we had the, the idea like a couple of months ago Bilal and I to go inside one of these places and do some basic cleaning for it and to do some basic rehabilitation and make a performance place and mm-hmm. invite the neighborhood to uh, share a story. So we're trying somehow to transform uh, this place from a place of killing and fighting to a place of uh, sharing, uh, having uh, people gathering to see art and uh, to share stories about the conflict and so on. Um, so we identified different locations. Now we did some work in one of the locations in here in the area. Uh, it was very intense experience for mm-hmm. me as, as conductor and for the group. Uh, we did some cleaning. I will show some pictures for you now and some videos. We did some cleaning and we invited people from the community. And I asked them in the beginning, and it does not happen usually in the performance, but I asked the audience to go and explore the space. So they moved out of their uh, audience chairs and 
they went and they explored the mm. whole the whole house and I asked them to each one of them to be in like a self journey in, in this space and they don't talk to each other while walking and like looking at, at the space. I asked them to each one of them to bring um, an object from the space. So whatever you find uh, attracting for you and, and on the floor uh, or somewhere else, you can bring it with, with you. So all the objects we had when they came back, it's really um, you know, very powerful. And it, it was like uh, uh, some bullets, uh, some glasses, some uh, uh, things uh, symbolizes a lot to everyone of the audience. And it's related directly to what happened in this place. And then we started hearing the, sh the sharing and the narratives about these objects and what does it mean for the audience, for the, the teller and uh, and the story of the teller. And we, we were playing out, uh, playing back uh, mm. the, the, these stories. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was intense. Uh, uh, now we, we have planned to do uh, other two locations uh, and to, to, to clean these locations and to invite people and to introduce payback to them and to make them come together on this common and safe space to share and to, to, to talk. So uh, we, have, we have a vision of doing three things. First, making people uh, express themselves, have the voice to say that yes we have an opinion on what happened and we have a story and the story needs to be told mm -hmm. and needs to be heard in a way or another uh, we want to make them meet and uh, uh, know that the other person from the other side is a human being also and he has a story and the story might be similar to my story mm -hmm. and the loss he is suffering from it's similar that than similar with the loss I'm suffering from so it's like building bridges between these mm -hmm. two communities for people to come and to see like okay I can relate to what you are saying and the third thing is to maybe bring more empathy mm -hmm. to the community. And this especially when we work on making your story or the story of someone from the audience as a story of everyone. And mm -hmm. it means for everyone. It's not anymore your story. It's a story of the suffering in the area. So, yeah, so this is it. Does it ever go wrong? Does it ever... It must be extraordinarily difficult to hold that space. Uh, it must sometimes escalate or uh, get out of control in some ways, no? Um, it happens, I mean... It happened with me, it depends, you know, when it's always like frightening for, for me uh, to see, uh, um, to go to a performance mm. and I always feel like I'm, I'm on fire and like, I, need to, I need to make sure that everything is being yeah. uh, uh, controlled. 
but I mean it's always the responsibility of everyone mm-hmm. to hold the, the energy and as a conductor يعني, if you are in my place you will be uh, you, you should be sensitive to the energy of the people and to include everyone in the audience and not to exclude anyone and to make sure that everyone's voice is being heard mm-hmm. and you need to present it or to help the, the, the teller to present it in, in a safe uh, way and to make sure that your story means uh, the other story uh, means a lot for us and you are never not being heard and understand from my position as a conductor that whenever you are trying to say in an aggressive or non-aggressive way is something you need to say mm-hmm. so I need to, to make to make a point of it mm-hmm. and the conductor also has a, a responsibility of being the educator mm-hmm. so whenever you have something wrong wrong going on uh, I have the right to stop the whole performance and to be very direct and to say like this place is not a place one of the performances was about elections in, in Lebanon and uh, mm-hmm. and people were not really happy from what they were hearing from each other because some of them were this side and the others were that side and for 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 some people, the candidates for the Lebanese election are the murderers who did the civil war. So it was like very, very tough. Uh, but it went well because I opened the space after the performance for them to come and to share. And I explained that this is point of view and let's, mm. let's have this dialogue. Mm. Uh, so they, 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 they were for an hour like just talking about it. Um, one of the most stressful performances uh, we did uh, was not in the area actually it was in in, um, in Beirut and uh, we was we were part of uh, um, three days workshop uh, like being held uh, with UNDP and The participants of the workshop was uh, were a um, group of uh, um, key persons, key, key leaders or key, key people from different areas in Mount Lebanon, mm-hmm. uh, which they were part of. Clashes happened after 2007 uh, uh, in, in Beirut. So, mm-hmm. so th- there was something happening with uh, Hezbollah in Beirut. You know Hezbollah? Of course. Yeah. So uh, the, the, there was there were an attack and uh, some something happened uh, between Shia and Druze in mm-hmm. Beirut. So it escalated uh, and it, uh, it reached Mount Lebanon, where a lot of killing happened between Druze and Shia. Mm-hmm. And 2007 till 2018, they never talked about it openly. Mm-hmm. So UNDP tried to bring them together under uh, mechanisms for social stability, and they were doing some reconciliation work with these people. They were 30. And they invited us in the second day to do a performance uh, after they finished their workshop. And for them, like, we're... 
bunch of guys dancing and doing weird stuff with the scarves and like all music uh, mm. things and then when we invited them to share actually mm. what what was present there is the story of what happened in 2007 nothing else yeah so they started talking about it but in a very uh, um, uh, the, the atmosphere was very like tense and it was very hot and yeah. like, everyone was like ner- nervous and until um, a, a, a girl she was like around 25 or something she came out uh, on the Taylor's chair and she shared the story of her father uh, in 2007 and what happened with him during the, the, that, that incident and then everyone was like collapsed and started like mm. talking and like mm. it was like chaotic in, in the audience so we had the story we had the enactment we had the enactment that was very powerful for everyone mm. and then we had uh, like 70 years old uh, lady or 60 years old lady she was sharing about her frustration and her sadness about losing this losing her friends in 2007 and mm. for her 2007 before 2007 is never like after 2007 and uh, and then we started like I, I felt the need to open the place for the dialogue and I stopped, I stopped the performance mm. and I was uh, mediating somehow between the two uh, mm. two groups, and we last last for like an hour and something, and it was amazing how people from different sides were talking about what happened for the first time mm. after 2012, uh, and it was amazing also because uh, what happened is we closed. After like two hours, the whole conversation and dialogue session, and we went to have dinner together. So it was amazing how uh, they were like sharing also after in the dinner, and how this this uh, lasted with them for the third day of the workshop, and they benefited from this material, and they the the dialogue happened. Uh, to use in the um, mm. uh, the peace building workshop on the third day. Uh, yeah. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I can imagine the tension that might be present in the room. Sometimes you're sort of relying on a few people from the communities to share some leadership, right? And to engage in a constructive way as you know, this younger woman and this older woman in this yeah. case. If you don't have that, yeah. um, it'd be very difficult. Does it matter that you're, uh, that you're Syrian? I mean, you've lived here some years now, you know, technically you're Syrian. Does this, how does this affect your role? Someone asked me the same question last week, by the way, and I was like thinking a lot about it and I, I was talking to Bilal also about it and I feel it's never when you come to a level of 
deep human being mm-hmm. sharing nationality does not matter anymore mm-hmm. and I never ever felt that the teller was being very vulnerable next to me and the chairs of the teller is looking at me as uh, someone who's from different nationalities especially because Syrian uh, presence here has really uh, uh, very complicated uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know um, being refugee and what happened in the civil war and so on yeah, yeah. but I never felt that the teller is is like looking at this because the teller usually is really focusing on himself and it's a lot about being vulnerable and like sharing and, and on this mm. level and this this is what we call the magic of playback theater when it creates this atmosphere of empathy mm. and we never look at each other as like citizens mm. we look at each other as a human being mm. and this is amazing because also in, in the group we have like Syrian, Lebanese like Christian, Sunnis, Alawites and it was never the matter for whoever is sharing from the community from whatever background like a concern of of like telling this mm. and these these actors the story and myself and you know like having the trust to to put your story in front of these people is challenging it's never about the community it's about myself i feel and mm. i know they have the right to to perceive me the way they want because they have their experiences they have their traumas and they have their prejudice um, uh, from what they went through so it was hard for me to be neutral and to, to work on my neutrality and whatever happens happens and I need to deal with it mm. because I'm the person who's coming and who is like so somehow imposing my th- myself to this community so that's mm. the, their choice uh, to accept or not uh, it's amazing that they are accepting it now <laughs> so yeah and it, it makes me grow more and more you know on, on, on psychological level like being more neutral and I think this is helping me also when I think like of going back to Syria mm. so it's it's always challenging because you know I'm very involved. I was very involved. I and I lost in, with my parents and my mm. family in Syria, and uh, I was definitely part of what's happening there. Mm. And for me, it's very challenging to think of going back and not to take part of the conflict yeah. because I lost in this conflict. So working in this area with the Lebanese people with the same somehow background, conflict background. Uh, is building my capacity to work, to go back and to be neutral mm. when working with my community there in the future. Mm. So I think I think it's something positive. Yeah, and I, I, it may be the same answer actually. But I was wondering uh, what led you to uh, co-found to start up something new with all of the 
time and difficulty and risk and cost and all the rest of it of doing it. Anyone who's ever started an organization knows how yeah. all-consuming it can be, right? What, I mean, you had a sort of couple of organizational homes before that, if I can put it that way. What led you to want to embark on that? This is back in 2014, 15. Uh, what, was there something specific that prompted you or... I think, like, frankly speaking, it's my uh, survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't survive without doing this yeah. because I wanted to put myself, like, fragment itself uh, in some place mm -hmm. with a structure. Mm -hmm. And to maybe it was personal healing for me because mm. I, I was not able to go back to Syria and to do anything there and I was always frustrated every couple of, of weeks someone calls me and said like my your cousin died and your uncle is in the prison and your second uncle died mm. and you know so I always have this <laughs> this uh, mm. phone calls so I needed somewhere some place to put myself together mm -hmm. and to do something about it uh, yeah, so I think this is this is uh, without this uh, without this I won't I won't survive. Mm. I wouldn't survive here. Mm. So where do you take it from here? Um, in the Syrian war in Syria is not ending. The situation will not sort of resolve itself completely, but it's it's evolving quickly. Uh, where do you go in the next few years then? What do you sort of envisage growing uh, this you know, organization that we're sitting in into? Yeah. Uh, how does that relate to uh, what you might do in Syria? I always had the vision and the dream of replicating what I'm doing here in Syria in the future. Mm. Uh, I, I, I never knew in what shape. Mm. Uh, because it's always changing and we, all, we are always, like especially me, I talk about myself, I was always living in an emergency mood mm. and I never expected what to do like on the other day and it was tiring for the, the past like 10 years to be always like in mm. emergency mode mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know I have I have a lot of dreams of like doing a lot of work in, 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 in Syria uh, in conflict transformation but at the same time I say okay we are still in the conflict and how we will be working post-conflict so I say okay let's wait post-conflict but also from the other side, I'm a psychotherapist and I have specialization which is really rare in Syria. And, and uh, doing trauma response is also one of my, my mandates in working. So mm. uh, despite the fact I'm doing playback theater, but I can also use my other skills in, in, in doing. I, I was involved in programming many other uh, psychosocial interventions in Syria, but I was like, uh, online following up with the teams uh, which is hard it was like I'm, I'm I'm afraid to reach the point where I think of immigrating to live in Europe mm -hmm. and not to be part of this anymore mm -hmm. because 
you know, sometimes you, you get really frustrated and you get really, uh, you get really down because of what's happening and you, you feel like, uh, I don't have energy anymore <laughs> to do any, I, I need, I need not to live in, in, in an emergency mode anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's, it's exhausting, it's energy draining and yeah. sometimes you don't see any impact, especially when something happened, uh, happens and you feel all the 10 years work as, as if it was not there. 10 days ago, I was stopped with, uh, in Beirut, a checkpoint, uh, security checkpoint stopped me. And I had my friend and we, we were two, like I had two of my friends in the car and we were all like, um, we, we have our papers and everything. The three of us were Syrian and it was horrible because they stopped us for like 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes and they were like just abusing us mm. in different ways, like verbally, emotionally, psychologically. And it was my first experience uh, facing this in Lebanon. It was my first, first time I feel I'm being discriminated in this country. However, I have been for 10 years spending my whole life mm. in helping this community. Mm. And I felt helpless at that and I felt like okay I want to leave and I don't want to live here and to live here anymore mm-hmm. the 10 years of working and I'm not I'm not waiting I'm not waiting uh, uh, something back and return but at, le- at least I'm, I'm I don't expect to be stopped by a general security mm-hmm. and to be discriminated and to be um, uh, like violated in a way uh, with my friends and like for for a week I was like seeing nightmares all the time about this mm. and I was like really depressed because of what happened and and I was thinking what is the uh, purpose like, mm. I mean yeah. sometimes you say like okay fuck it I mean but you know, when I work with the community on, on a very uh, grassroots level, I feel how much uh, helpful is what I'm doing and mm. how much uh, uh, this is helping me. Yeah, so mm. it's always like changing, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, um, is there anything else you wanted to? that you had in mind that you wanted to touch on? Maybe to say something to someone living in South Africa, hearing this, or in India, or hopefully in different places in the world. Mm. Uh, I believe that every person has a story, and every story matters, and from every story you can build a huge intervention to save people. Mm. So I never give up, mm. but I feel down sometimes, but it's not the end. Mm. Mm. Uh, Thank you. One thing I ask everybody, do, do you have a, has there been a book or a, 
necessarily a book, I guess. It could be a, a poem or, or a, a song or whatever, but um, something that has been uh, very influential for you uh, or that has really sort of shaped your view of what you can do in these kinds of situations. And you've mentioned a number of the people who are, have been sort of key in, in developing the playback theater stuff. But is there any, any particular reference point you've had over the years? I have I have many uh, on academic level and non academic level. Let's let's go with non special, not too yeah. specialist. I mean, uh, one of the books who, uh, which really changed my perspective to things called the psychology of war, mm-hmm. and it's very very interesting. Uh, one chapter in this book was written by my professor, mm-hmm. and she was describing the psychoanalysis of the Lebanese war and it was very touching for me and I built most of my uh, psychological intervention based on that. Another book I really love and it inspired me a lot is called um, uh, Broken Open. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's for uh, Elizabeth uh, Leather, I think. She's from the US and she's talking about how Hard times make you grow. The first book I read in my life was very interesting because it's also always with me and I always like look at it. Uh, It was very, very hard to to understand in the beginning, but it was a book called This is How I See the World. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a couple of uh, lectures by uh, Albert Einstein uh, about how he views the world. So... Uh, it's always also in my head. Right. This is how I see the world. <laughs> that was the first book you read. <laughs> yeah, I was like 14, 13. I mean, <laughs> other than my my uh, of studies, yeah, school books. This was the first book I read. Yeah, <laughs> start with the uh, start with the easy stuff, right? <laughs> cool. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's let's wrap it there. Thank you. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.